Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Conspiranormal Podcast proudly presents The Strange Realities Conference Strange Realities Come join us for one day of presentations on the paranormal with live music at night featuring Tim Banal The Rise and Fall of the Flat Earth Theory Joshua Kutchin Alien Hybrid Lore Joe Damari Pushing the Limits of Reality Guy Malone Roswell 1947 What Really Happened Timothy Renner Pennsylvania Wildman And added to the lineup Mark Anthony Wyatt Cornish Legends and UFO Sightings Zach Hunt a Presentation of his book Unraptured Followed by a live recording of the Conspiranormal Podcast More speakers and music acts to be announced October 19, 2019 SIR Nashville Tickets and info at www.strangerealitiesconference.com $40 at the door, 30 bucks pre-sale. This is Conspiranormal, where the nexus of conspiracy theory and the paranormal meet. And now, we join the show already in progress. With your hosts, Adam and Seraphiel. All right, guys, welcome back to Conspiranormal. We are here, and we've got a special treat for you guys tonight. We're delving into true crime again. With our good friend Jenny Ashford from the 13 O'Clock Podcast. And she has just finished her latest book, latest magnum opus on The Faceless Villain. The Faceless Part Villain. Part 3. Part 3. Welcome back, Jenny, to Conspiracy Normal. Well, hey, you guys. I'm really happy to be back. Um, yeah, it's great to have you back. You're Always one of our favorite guests. Um, oh, thank you. So in this book, you cover these unsolved murders from 1980 to 1999 basically yeah and for people that may have not they're maybe new to the show or new to, new to your show for those people can you give kind of like what's your criteria for the cases that you include in the in these books hmm it's well i didn't really have like a hard and fast criteria i guess i tried to but then i kind of found myself you know going off on different directions um, you know, basically, I wanted to do a trilogy that was the entire 20th century. And I was initially it was going to be one book, but then I divided, had to divide it up into three because it was just too many. 
And so I just did it kind of in these little, you know, these little sections. What I wanted to do was I wanted to focus on cases that were like that had like creepy or mysterious elements. So usually like random murders, like people that were murdered by strangers. Um, So I usually left out stuff that was like, you know, it was a robbery or, you know, it was a mob hit or an assassination, like a political assassination or something like that, because even though they might not have ever caught the person that actually did it, it's still like the, the motive for it wasn't mysterious. So that was kind of like the rough criteria that I used, like of stuff that I wanted to put in there. I was like, now I want cases that are just like bizarre that like, you're like, why would somebody do this? Why did they pick these people at random? It's like, you know, that kind of thing. Sure. So, so I mostly like kept with that. There was a couple ones that were kind of, you know, on the fence, but then I was like, well, I kind of have to include that one because it's like so well known or like the victim was kind of like a well-known person or something like that. And it would be weird if I left it out. But usually I stuck to that criteria, just stuff that I thought was mysterious and that I couldn't really see any reason behind it. There didn't seem to be any reason behind it. So that's kind of what I tried to do. Okay. And you also talk a lot about like kind of like the, the John Doe's or the Jane Doe's, a lot of Jane Doe's that uh, yeah. just, these these bodies that just show up and then are either identified or in many cases are still unidentified. Yeah, as an alarming amount are. And the, and the, the funny thing about it too is that there are like particular cases of serial killers where they're not even sure that it's one killer or these are all related crimes like the redhead murders for example yeah. where I would, you know, more than half of those victims are still unidentified because a lot of them were runaways or were prostitutes or something like that. And they think that maybe the serial killer, if it's just one guy, they're not entirely sure, um, might have been a truck driver or something like that. So he's just picking these girls up and killing them and just leaving them on the sides of highways somewhere. And, you know, their families may not live in the same state and or may not have reported them missing because you know, for various reasons, because they're estranged or whatever. So it's really alarming. And the thing about it, too, is that I had to leave out, like, as far as John and Jane Doe, you know, cases go, I had to leave a lot out. Because for a while, like, I put some in the book, but then after a while, like, I kept looking, I'm like, I just can't put all of these in here, like, especially if there wasn't a lot of detail about, about the case. Um, you know, I just, so a lot of those, I just had to leave out because there are so, so many, there's just like thousands and thousands and thousands. And it was like, it was really scary to me that there were so many people, you know, that got murdered and they're just still unidentified to this day. I mean, they are, they are working on it. And I did write about a few cases, you know, where they were a Jane Doe, like say back in the early eighties, but say like in 2018, 2019, um, you know, they have still been working on the case through DNA or fingerprinting or whatever. And some of them have been identified, but there's still like a whole bunch of them that haven't been. And that's really, that's really upsetting <laughs> to me. Yeah, it is. I mean, this is all throughout all three of these books too. And, and, and most of them are women. I mean, we've talked about this before, just like the, yeah. the disproportionate amount of violence towards women. I, I don't think like being male, like I really have realized just how much these kind of violent acts have been done towards women. And it was your books. that kind of like clued me into that. Just how, most of these victims are women essentially. Yeah. 
It does seem to be that, and and like I said, and I think we talked about this when you know when I was talking about the last volume. Yeah, it's like I didn't even really mean to do that. Like I didn't mean to leave out quote unquote you know cases where the victims were male because there are a lot in there. Right. But it does seem like you know cases where the victims were male there was usually some reason like they you know they were fighting with a rival or it was a robbery or it was a gang type of thing or something like that whereas when you get these kind of like random unsolved murders where it's just like some woman was just like walking home from work or just got off the bus or something like that um you know the victims of those types of crimes are um, are overwhelmingly women yeah. so i you know like i said i didn't really mean to like make any statement or anything like that about like violence against women it just so happens yeah. that those types of random murders the victims are almost always women no i mean just like your facts and your research just bore it out you know this, yeah. this, this this exhaustive study that you've done on all this well since we hit it already let's talk about the redhead murders because this actually um is pretty close to home for us. I think one of the bodies was actually found not too far from where we are in Nashville. Yeah, there were some in Tennessee and there were some kind of like, you know, all over the place. And like I said, this is kind of a case where this could be a single serial killer. It could be multiple serial killers. They're not entirely sure. Um, And there are a lot of cases that are like adjacent to it that they're not even sure connected. Um, I'm guessing that the reason they link a lot of these, like I said, because, you know, most of the victims were, you know, were were runaways or were prostitutes or something like that and were found alongside major highways where truck drivers would be. Um, and just the fact that so many of them had red hair, auburn hair, something like that, which, you know, red hair is kind of like, is not very common. So I'm guessing that's probably why they're linking a lot of these um but the redhead murders the series um they think like the kind of canonical ones uh took place between 1978 and the 1980s although there were some up until the early 90s that they think might be related um so so if this is one person or you know a couple people working in synchrony or whatever i mean the low estimate is six victims high estimate is 11 victims um, a lot of these have not been identified, although some have been identified kind of recently. If this is one killer, he's also sometimes known as the Bible Belt Strangler. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like a sociology class that gave him that gave him that name. Yeah, I think um, it was University of Tennessee that did that, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah in, in Elizabethton or something like that. But yeah, so the first, uh, the first one was actually found... Um, you know, like I said, there were a few beforehand that they're not sure were linked, but one of the canonical ones was found in uh, February of 1983, and that was in West Virginia. And um, this is Wetzel County Jane Doe. And uh, she was actually found uh, like alongside the side of um, Route 250 near Littleton as I said, in West Virginia. And uh, she was found by a pair of senior citizens who thought the body was a mannequin. Yeah, that's, that's a common thing. In that's your books. very yeah. common because that's the first thing you would think. I mean, you wouldn't think, hey, that's a dead. Well, I would probably think, hey, it's a dead body. But I think most people would right. probably think it was a dead body. So um, now when the when the old couple found this girl... Um, they assumed that she had just been dumped there because there was the, the ground was snowy, but the body didn't have any snow on it and there weren't any, uh, you know, other stuff on there. So they figured she had just been dumped. 
Um, you know, they found some tire tracks and footprints and stuff like right around there. Now she hadn't been raped. Um, and they couldn't determine like how she had died. Like I said, they call this guy the Bible belt strangler and some of the other victims were strangled, but this one, they couldn't really be determined. Um, so because she had red hair, you know, she would later get linked in between the others. Now she was a little bit older. She was probably about 40 maybe. Um, you know, cause some of the other victims were a lot younger, um, about 135 pounds, about five foot six inches. Um, they think maybe she had had, uh, at least one kid before cause she had like a cesarean scar. Now they didn't think that she was necessarily like, um, homeless or like a hitchhiker or anything like that, just because she had, um, like she had shaved her legs and her armpits and stuff like that, which they said, usually if you're like a transient or something, that's not really something you'd worry about. So presumably she wasn't just homeless or whatever. Um, they think that this girl, even though they don't know who she is, that she was seen either working at a bar in Wheeling, West Virginia, like not too long before she was found dead or that she was a customer of that bar. So as I said, now that girl is still, that woman is still, um, unidentified. Now they found another one, another body in, uh, September of 1984. Uh, and this was in West Memphis, Arkansas, and she was found along interstate 40 and she was 28 years old. They did identify her, her name was Lisa Nichols. Um, so she was found mostly naked. She just had a sweater on. Um, she was actually from West Virginia. Um, she had probably been estranged from her family, which was why, you know, I don't know if she had been reported because there's a problem too. It's like, if the victims are transported like over a state line, then sometimes, even though technically law enforcement is supposed to like enter these bodies into a database, like a national database for missing persons stuff. But that wasn't always done, particularly back in, you know, back in the eighties. So sometimes it took like a long time to kind of coordinate. Um, so yeah, she was actually, when they found her, they didn't identify her for, I believe almost a year. And then later on, you know, they got her fingerprints and they were able to identify, uh, who she was. Although her parents did not identify her, this couple that she had been living with in Florida, ended up having to um, identify her. So they think that maybe she had been hitchhiking and that um, she had been picked up from a truck stop and then someone had killed her. Um, There was another one in uh, early January, 1985. This one was in Tennessee in Jellico. Okay. Um, I know where that is. Yeah. Yeah. East Tennessee. Um, Yeah. They found her, um, off of interstate 75. Um, Mm -hmm. she had probably, they think she'd been dead for 72 hours, but she must've been laying out in the weather because she was really decomposed. Um, she was probably 17 to 25 years old, but could have been as old as 30 years old. Um, she actually, I don't think she had been raped either. She, um, was found fully dressed. Uh, she was also, uh, 12 weeks pregnant. So she was another one, also had red hair. Um, now, she was unidentified until 2018, actually. Uh, so for a long time, I think she was just known as Campbell County Jane Doe. But in 2018, late 2018, uh, they actually identified her through fingerprints as Tina Farmer. She was originally from Indiana, and she was 21 years old. 
Um, she had last been seen in Indianapolis with a truck driver who was supposedly going to Kentucky. Whether this guy was the one that killed her or she got a ride later on from someone else who ended up killing her, they don't really know. Um, this was a case where she had gone missing um, in 1984 and her family did report her missing, but because they she had been reported missing in Indiana where she was from and she was found in Tennessee, you know, her name had not been entered into a national database. So they didn't, you know, they didn't put those two things together. Um, now, another one happened. Another body was found in Tennessee in April of 1985. And this was actually just a skeleton. And this was like a young girl. She was probably between nine and 15 years old. Um, and this was also, she was also found near Jellico, uh, about 200 yards off Big Wheel Gap Road. Um, and this one, they're not sure how she died, um, but they're presuming because she was found off the side of a road, they're presuming that was murder. Uh, but they didn't find the whole body. They only found like 32 bones, uh, which included her skull. Uh, they did try to do like a facial reconstruction. Uh, but you know, they found some other like jewelry and shoes and things like that around the body. Um, but she, they still haven't identified her. Now they have done, um, the isotopic, the isotopic analysis, like on the bones and stuff where they can tell like where you're from and where you've lived and stuff because of, you know, various chemicals in the water and whatnot. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting when you mentioned that stuff in the book. Yeah. It's like they, they've made like a lot of strides in that. It's like amazing now how, they could even tell you, it's like, oh, they were born here, but then when they were 10 years old, they moved to this place and stuff like that. They can tell, I guess, just yeah. like I said, by by various, you know, pollens in the air, various things like that. But yeah, so they think that this girl, whoever she is, um, that she was originally from uh, Texas or possibly Florida, um, but that later she had moved to maybe the Pacific Coast, maybe the Southwest uh, maybe the Midwest. They're not entirely sure. But again, she is still identif unidentified. Um, and then there was another one in Tennessee uh, from March of 1985. This was also a skeleton. Uh, this was in Pleasant View. Um, when they found her, they thought she had been dead about four months. Um, not entirely sure if she's related to the same series, but uh, she did have red hair. And uh, her body was found along an interstate, Interstate 24 in this case. Yeah, that's uh, not far also, from where we are right now. Yeah. So this was like, I, was, most of them were found in Tennessee. There were some in Arkansas, there were some in Kentucky and stuff like that. So that's why they're thinking that this guy is most likely a truck driver. I mean, it might be more than one, and it might just be, you know, coincidence that they all have red hair. But I don't know. I, I kind of feel like, because the age range is kind of wide, which is unusual for serial killers, but you know, it wouldn't be the first time. Right. So, you know, there's no telling. Yeah. So, um, this woman, as I said, uh, is also unidentified and, uh, she is thought to be between 31 and 40 years old. Now this one, uh, April, 1985, they actually found a body inside a refrigerator uh this was in gray kentucky uh, alongside route 25 and she had been suffocated 
she had actually uh, been dead for a couple days when they found her in the refrigerator. She was found naked except for like a couple of necklaces that had kind of distinctive pendants on them. She, um, the creepy thing is that the, the refrigerator that they found her in had a sticker on the front that said Superwoman on it, which I thought was, so it was just like abandoned refrigerator. And for a long time when they didn't, uh, you know, cause she hadn't been identified, they called her the redhead in the refrigerator, which I thought was a little insensitive, but you know, I guess that's going to happen. But yeah, so uh, she was actually seen, um, they they thought she might have been trying to like hitch a ride with a trucker, like over CB, she was trying to get to North Carolina. Mm. Uh, she was again, unidentified for a very long time, but then uh, finally identified through DNA in 2018 uh, as SB Regina Black Pilgrim. She was originally from North Carolina. Now she had a kid that's how they uh, found her, like through the the grown daughter's DNA, uh, you know, profile. The daughter had been only six weeks old when her mom disappeared. Was this through like a twenty three and Me kit? Yeah, it might have been. It's like could be, that. Really, does seem to be the way that they're doing a lot of this stuff. This right. unless they unless police like maybe already suspected that it might be her, and they were just kind of going down the possibilities because they do try to rule out. Um. You know, because a lot of times when you go to like these unidentified, you know, the unidentified wiki and all that other kind of stuff, like with all these people, like it'll have a big list at the bottom of, you know, other missing persons that have been ruled out as being this person. So I, I do feel like they do kind of just go down the list and then go, well, maybe it's this person. And then they call, you know, a relative of that person and go, hey, we need your DNA to see if this is that and the other. So it might have been that as well. It might not have been like a Golden State Killer situation where it was just like kind of an accidental one of his relatives just happened to upload their dna right. to like a public you know dna database and stuff like that have you seen the, i saw him the other day because i hadn't really been following the case the golden state killer case but i saw him uh on the news the other day and he's apparently is he on a hunger strike or something like that oh, no i haven't heard about this no he is unrecognizable i didn't really? recognize him because he's like he's so so thin it's like it was huh. like really weird because I'm sitting there going, they're talking about the Golden State Killer. I'm like, who the hell is that guy? And I was like, oh man, okay, I guess he just lost a whole bunch of weight. Yeah, he's so terrible, and everyone's just taking his commissary. <laughs> yeah, <I guess. laughs> that's probably what it is. Who, who, uh, are there any suspects for this for the redheaded killer? Like, not so much. It it just really seems like there's a couple. The only suspects that they know about. Um, there was a guy who was caught in the mid 1980s, uh, and he was a trucker. He was 37 years old at the time. Now he had actually got a redheaded woman in his truck and he tried to strangle her and then left her on the side of the road thinking she was dead. Uh huh. I believe he raped her also. Um, but she survived and, um, you know, she went and, uh, and reported it, but apparently that kind of went nowhere uh there was also another truck driver uh from pennsylvania and he had kidnapped and raped a woman in indiana but she got away from him um but they interviewed apparently the tennessee police interviewed both of these guys and didn't go any further with it because either there wasn't any evidence to link them to any of the other cases in question or for whatever other reason but those are the only two suspects that i know about and like i was saying the um 
that sociology class that that dubbed this guy the Bible Belt Strangler, they spent like a whole semester like doing an FBI profile of what this dude was probably like. And then they submitted it to the FBI and they said, yeah, I suppose so. That, <laughs> they're like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. So that's pretty much the profile that they're going with, um, you know, being a, a white male born between 1936 and 1962, probably a commercial trucker who uh, whose mo- main routes take him along Interstate 40 and all of its uh, arteries. Um, probably, they said he's probably like tall to average height, 5'9 to 6'2", probably kind of heavy set, um, and that he probably lives around Knoxville, Tennessee. But that's that's their profile huh, okay. of, of the person. The Bible so, Belt Strangler. The Bible Belt Strangler, yeah. <laughs> uh, before we get into another case, I was wondering with this book, what um, what really makes these cases different uh, from the 60s and 70s? What are some of the trends that you saw? Is there like changes to investigative trends too that makes it made it easier to find people or, or what what's really the main differences between the, the past decade? One of the things I noticed when in this book, Jenny, to add to that is is uh you there was a lot less of the cases that you mentioned in this book than the one in the sixties and seventies. Yeah, the the middle version the middle uh installment of the series was almost twice as long as the other two. Because, I mean, the first volume of this book was 50 years. It was like 1900 to 1959, right? Yeah? Yeah. And, so, and you know, obviously I couldn't, I couldn't put as many cases in that just because it was so long ago and it's hard to find, you know, research materials and things like that. But I noticed that when I was working on this book, it's like, you know, it's long. It was about as long as the first one. But the second volume that covered the 60s and 70s was way longer. It seems like... And I think that, um, I mean, Tom and I have talked about this on the on the show, on our show a few times, too. I really feel like the the whole serial killer thing, I mean, that seemed to be like a huge aspect of the 60s and 70s. And yes, a yeah. lot of them were caught, but there were a lot of them that weren't caught, too. And so there was a lot more of this type of these type of like really horrible, like sexual crimes you know, this one guy like going around doing all this stuff. And it's like, there was some of that in the eighties and nineties, but it didn't seem quite as common. You know what I mean? You didn't really see, and even the ones that were there, like the redhead murders or, you know, even something more recent, like the colonial parkway killer and stuff. It, it mostly just seems like that kind of thing. It doesn't seem like killers with a specific signature as much as in the sixties and seventies. It's mostly just, mostly just seem like truckers they're picking up hitchhikers or picking up prostitutes and just raping and strangling them and throwing them out on the side of the road. There wasn't very much of this, you know, this thing that you saw with like Bundy or with Ed Kemper or something like that, where they had a very specific fetish, you know, where it was like beheadings and necrophilia and things like that. And you didn't really see as much of that. Um, But, and I'm not entirely sure why that is. It seems like a lot of the murder you know, you just don't see serial killers like you saw then. I think it's just because there was so much social upheaval and, yeah, you know, everything was just shifting and, the, you know, the whole zeitgeist was turned upside down. So I think there was there was a lot of that going on. It's just everything just went crazy for a while. It just seems like now, you know, yes, we get mass shooters. Yes, we still have serial killers. Yes, we have that. But 
because of, you know, the internet, because it's, it's harder to get away with things nowadays, you know? Well, and all those high profile serial killers getting caught, you know, and that being really publicized might've. Yeah. It really does seem to have dampened down on that a lot. And the FBI really being able to like zero in to the type and all the profiling. Yeah. They got their profiling together and. Yeah, and it's and now they and I really got interested and I probably mentioned this before, but I really got interested in like this kind of geographical profiling where, you know, if they know where all the victims are, they know like pretty much within a mile or so, like where this dude probably lives. You know what I mean? Because just because they're they're so used to like studying these types of killers that, you know, they can narrow down, you know, where he's probably coming from because they all have patterns, whether they realize it or not. So I I do feel like since so much work has been done in that in that area that it's much much harder to get away with it. It's like you might see one crime like that, two crimes like that, but after a while like they get caught. You know what I mean? There's DNA, there's you know, we have so much stuff now that we didn't have back then. You know, and even that started to come around like in the mid to late 1980s when DNA was kind of first coming into its infancy and stuff like that. So I think you see less of, you know, there were some horrible cases in here about like, you know, entire families being massacred and stuff like that. But you don't see as much of the serial killer type thing as you used to see, not that specific type of thing. Right. Is is there a sense of how, um, how these, these killers like meet their victims uh, versus uh, and how much is maybe just straight up abduction. Um, You know, is this kind of like a, is there a sense of how how much of this kind of occurs through a normal kind of friendly interaction and then turns into that or, or, you know, or how much is just flat out abduction? A lot of it's weird because a lot of the cases that I write about, like I said, they're usually kind of random. And so in that sense, I think that, if the victim actually did know the killer, it was just like a, an acquaintance that no one even thought of. Right. Because a lot of times, like, you know, a woman is, you know, for example, like she gets off a bus from work or whatever and she's abducted and murdered. Um, you know, the obviously the first thing you think of is like, oh, it's a boyfriend or it's some guy that was stalking her or something like that. But usually when they look into that, you know, it wasn't them. So I do feel like there's a definite it's either these dudes that are just like, oh, well, I'm just going to kill the first woman that walks by here, just whoever it is, or it's somebody that's been watching her from Stalking, afar without yeah. her realizing it. You know what I mean? It's, you know, there's there's some cases like, you know, the case of Dorothy Scott, which, you know, is kind of a well-known case where, you know, she had, uh, you know, taken a co-worker to the hospital for a spider bite or something like that and, then she went out to get the car to like bring the car around so her and her friend could get back in the car. And then, you know, the car goes speeding out of the parking lot, uh, you know, driven by a man. And then later on they find her body and they, they're pretty sure that the guy that did that was stalking her, but they don't know who it is. She had been getting like threatening phone calls and stuff like that, but they, you know, she didn't really know the guy, you know what I mean? So I, I think there's a lot of that going on, but I definitely do think a lot of it is just random. I think it's just a guy who's a killer and he's just like hanging out in a place and he's just like, okay, well, I'm going to kill somebody today. And whoever walks by, they're the, they're the lucky recipient, or, I guess. It's like, it just, really, yeah, he sees it just it. really seems like that might be what's going on because, 
you know, like I said, if it was someone they knew, then it's likely that they would have solved it. The reason a lot of these are not solved is because there was no association between the killer and the victim. Or he just sees a type that he likes and he just zeroes in on it. Yeah, and that's probably the case in the Redhead Bears. I could see also how uh, maybe kind of the nature of this is besides some of these high profile, really organized, like the, you know, really crazy ones besides them, I could see how it's kind of an impersonal thing to be able to kill that many people. Whenever there's other murders and crimes of passion, things like that, people who only kill one person, you know, it's usually like a, you know, it usually is personal. Right. But, you know, being able to kill multiple people, it probably has to be impersonal unless you're just on that extra level of monster. Well, there's always, there's always a sexual element that's involved too, where like basically they're using the dead body as a sex doll, essentially. I mean, that's really what it is. Yeah, I mean, to do that type of stuff, you really have to, like, objectify the victims. Right. And I think, like I said, that's that's kind of the difference, too. And I don't know, remember if I mentioned it on here, if I mentioned it on one of our shows, but that's kind of the big difference between, you know, your male serial killers and your female serial killers. Um, you know, it, obviously, 85%, 90% of serial killers are men, but there is almost always, like, a sexual element, an objectification element, whereas female serial killers largely tend to kill people they know um, for other types of reasons, not usually for sexual reasons. It's usually for practical reasons, for money, you know, for other reasons. Yeah. Like they're more pragmatic. A lot of the poisoners or, you know, that's what they yeah, did. That, yeah. It's like, you know, they will be like a nurse or, you know, or something they'll kill, you know, babies in their care or they'll poison the elderly people in their care. It's just people they know or that they interact with. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's, that's, seems kind of scary too in a different way well like uh, <laughs> elaine warnos i mean she was slightly different i think but with yeah. her it was more i guess that she was kind of acting out on what she felt was like abuse towards her and other women i think was yeah. how what what she did i mean she was a little slightly different I mean, she's probably the the best known female serial killer yeah she's like yeah and she's like an exception to the rule and even her yeah you know, she was kind of like, it, I don't think it was sexual for her. No, it was it just like she was treated badly by men and she thought that all men should suffer for that and that she should punish them. There was this um, crusading aspect that she had. Yeah, it was almost yeah. like a mission type killer because she thought, oh, well, these guys are scumbags and I'm getting rid of them. You know what I mean? So some male serial killers have that too, um, you know, mission style serial killing, but you know, where they think, Oh, prostitutes and they're all whores and the I Gary need to... Ridgeway. Yeah. Green river. Yeah. It, but, but he still liked to go back He's and have the sex only with female the bodies. Killer that did. Yeah. As Tom would say, because it's free. <laughs> it's free. Yeah. <laughs> That's what Tom says. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty am- like, that is, that is messed up. <laughs> pretty amazing. Let's yeah. <laughs> let's get into one of these uh, one of the crazier cases, and this is actually pretty early in the book. This is the uh, Kingfish Boat Ramp Murders. Oh, and this case fascinated me so much because this happened in Florida, and uh, I had never of heard about it, did. it before. Yeah, I had never heard about it before. So it's this this is another one where it's like I just have no idea like what the motive behind this could be. This is this is like a textbook kind of case that I wanted to put in the book because this is just messed up. So this happened in uh, summer of 1980 and there was the Dumois family and uh, the dad, Juan Dumois, he was a pediatrician. So he was a doctor. Um, he had a wife named Maria. They had four kids. They were from Tampa. 
Now, in the summer of 1980, they're going to go take a vacation to uh, this island called Anna Maria Island. It's like off the west coast of Florida. It's about seven miles long. They're all going to go out with, the, you know, they got a boat and they're going to go fishing and all this other stuff. So they go there. They have like a vacation cottage. Now, the dad and his um, brother-in-law, uh, whose name is Raymond Barrows, those two and the two younger kids uh, who were named Eric and Mark, uh, they were 13 and 9, they were going to go out uh, on the boat and go fishing and everything like that. And the mom and the two older kids who were older teenagers, you know, they stayed back at the vacation cottage doing whatever they were doing. So, you know, so they go out on the boat, they go fishing, they come back like, you know, kind of middle, late afternoon. It was three or four o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, they had caught a bunch of fish. They were all happy about it and everything like that. So they come back, they hook the boat back to the, you know, onto the car and they're going to drive back to the vacation cottage. Now, while they're driving, this dude comes out of, there's like a little, you know, little thing of trees or shrubbery or something. And he comes out of there and he's pushing a bicycle and he starts waving the car down. Now, Dr. Dumois, he like pulls over and he's like, you know, hey man, what's the problem? Now the guy says that he had hurt his ankle and that he would like a ride to, there was like a, you know, like a condominium complex or like an apartment complex, like just up around the corner. He's like, can, you know, can you just give me a ride to that? Because, you know, I hurt my ankle and it hurts to, you know, it hurts to walk. I can't ride my bike or whatever. So the guy's like, you know, sure, man, it's just right over there. You know, the doctor even like takes the dude's bike and like loads the dude's bike, like in the boat. And then the guy gets in the car. Now they start driving away like towards this condominium complex. And all of a sudden the guy pulls out a gun and just starts shooting like inside the car. He shoots Raymond Barrows first. Then he shoots the two little boys in the head. And then he shoots the doctor. And then he like, like leans up into the front seat and like, you know, steers the car off onto the shoulder of the road, gets out of the car, just, th and this is the middle of the afternoon. And he just gets his bike very calmly out of the boat and starts riding his bike down toward like a grocery store down the street. So four dead people in this car, he just like pulled it and shot him. They did not, they did not know him. They had never seen him before. Um, and all this other stuff. So he just shoot shot these people. Now it happened that there was, um, there was a guy, uh, named Robert Matsky. He was an air force Lieutenant retired and he lived around there and he'd been in his front yard and he saw the car like kind of pulling over and the guy getting out. Now he didn't know that anybody had been shot in the car. He thought it was just like an accident or something was the matter with the car or something like that. So he says to his wife, he's like, you know, I'm going to go see if they need any help. You know, why don't you call the police and report the accident? So he goes, he gets in his car and drives over to where the guy is, you know, on the bicycle and he like pulls up and he's like, Hey man, you know, are you all right? What happened with the accident or whatever? And then the guy on the bicycle pulls out a gun and shoots that guy in the back of the this head. This is like something out of a movie. I mean, really, That's like, this is like amazing. This is amazing to me. So then, so after that happens, so the, so Robert Matsky, who is driving a car has been shot. So obviously his car kind of goes careening off toward, you know, this other car in a parking lot. Meanwhile, this woman who was coming out of the grocery store, she sees that and thinks that's another car accident. So she calls the police and reports that as a car accident. So now the cops think that there's two car accidents, even though all these people have been shot. 
So the cops come and since they at first think it's a car accident, they didn't really, they, they weren't super careful to like, you know, they didn't know it was a murder scene. So it's like, you know, bystanders are coming around, like trying to get people out of the car, thinking they've been hurt in, in the car accident. There was like a sprinkler on it, like wiped off all this evidence and all this other stuff. And it's just like, it was this huge thing. And then finally they figure out that these people have been shot and who was that guy on the bicycle. Now it turned out that somebody in the grocery store, like a woman had seen uh, the woman uh, had seen the, uh, the guy on the bike and he had t- put the bike in the back of like a uh, tan Ford that had a black top and it was driven by another guy that was like his getaway driver, presumably. And he got into that car and they took off. So that was pretty much the only thing. Now there was also another guy who was, um, he owned like a TV repair shop on Anna Maria Island. And he was also a photographer, like an amateur. And he had a camera with him all the time. Now, when he saw the car, um, Dr. Dumois' car, kind of going off the road, he instinctively just like took a picture of it. So he actually did get a picture of the killer. However, he forgot to turn the autofocus on on his camera. So even though he did get a picture of the murder scene, he did get a picture of the killer, it was too blurry to be of any use. Now, as it turned out, uh, Raymond Barrows, who was Dr. Dumas's brother-in-law, he actually survived. <clears throat> but Dr. Dumas, the two little boys, and Robert Matsky, you know, the guy that had followed after the guy on the bike, um, they all died. So they never found anything to do. Like, they have a description of the guy um, who they think he, they said he was about six feet tall, um, kind of thin, but really muscular, they said he had kind of thick brown hair, like combed straight back, like off his forehead, that he had a cleft chin. They also said he had blue eyes and that he might have spoken with like kind of a New England accent, maybe, a I don't know, like a Boston accent or something like that. And that's about the only description that they have. So, you know, despite years and years of like looking into this case, they were, you know, they kind of explored, the police explored like a lot of... um kind of different avenues they thought well maybe it had something to do with maybe raymond barrows was you know the target of the attack like maybe he had something like drug trafficking or something maybe it had something to do with um you know because dr Dumois was originally from cuba and he had escaped like when castro was in maybe it had something to do with that um you know they even went so far as to think you know maybe because dr Dumois was a pediatrician they said well maybe you know, one of the parents of like one of his patients like was mad that he didn't do enough to like help them or something like that. And maybe he killed them because of that or or maybe it was just completely random. They're really not entirely sure. So other than that, they really had nothing. They did arrest one guy uh, in Tampa. He was actually originally from Chicago. His name was Richard Lee Whitley. And he was wanted uh, by the FBI. There was like a murder that had taken place in Falls Church, Falls Church, Virginia, like shortly before that. Uh, but he was subsequently released. They also arrested another guy named William William Peter Kuhlman or Kuhlman. Um, and he had actually killed a woman in Bradenton or allegedly killed a woman in Bradenton uh, with the same caliber of handgun. Uh, but he was acquitted and they did ar- they did like question him in the Kingfish boat ramp murders, but they couldn't find any evidence of 
his involvement in that either. So as far as I know, like they've reopened the case fairly recently. I think uh, I read they reopened it in 2010 and they might've even like, you know, reopened it again, like even more recently than that. But yeah, this is, like I said, this is, this is one of the ones that like really got me not only because it was, you know, Florida, I used to live in Tampa and it, Florida and I'd never even heard of it, even though, you know, I was a kid when it happened, but just at every single, you know, motive for this just sounds like who does that? And he's on a bike. He comes out of a bush on a bike, shoots a bunch of people in the middle of the afternoon and then just wanders it's, off like nothing happens. It, it, it sounds like a hitman. It really does. It re- yeah. It's like that really sounds like the most likely thing. And it's like, you know, the fact that Raymond Barrows, if he was the one that was targeted because he was the first one shot. Yeah. Um, you know, so it does seem a little more likely if this wasn't a random crime that maybe he was the target and then the other three guys were there. So he said, well, whatever, I'm just going to like shoot all of them. Do you Even think, though he's, yeah. he survived, but he didn't say anything. But, you know, if, if he was involved in some criminal activity, maybe he didn't want to, you know, tempt fate. A lot, a lot of these ones with firearms to me sounds like you've got really sick people who like get a hold of their first gun. Yeah, and are like, oh, I wonder what it would feel like to shoot somebody. And you Just know, they there. might they might have these terrible homicidal thoughts, but they might be you know physically weak or or not be able to go through with like bashing someone's head in or stabbing somebody. But you know, they get a hold of their first pistol and they're just like, hey, <laughs> yeah, is, uh, maybe that's what it is. It could be as simple as that. Let's let's move on to um, this one is an interesting case, and I'll tell you, we uh, there's actually someone that we know that's actually kind of linked to this one um, that we found out. Amy, don't snitch at him. Amy Mahalovich. Oh, Amy Mahalovich. Yeah, this is a pretty weird one. Let me scroll down my notes because I have them all. I have all the notes like laid out in the order that you gave them to me. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm skipping like, around because there's no way we're going to get to all of these. Yeah, I know. That's what I was thinking. Duh. It's like, because some of these are like super, super complicated. But yeah, so Amy Mahalovic, this one happened in uh, Bay Village, Ohio in October of 1989. Now, this one started uh, Amy Mahalovic. She was 10 years old. She's at home one day, um, you know, like you do. The phone rings. She picks it up. Now, on the other end of the phone, presumably, is this man that says, you have to come meet me at the Bay Ridge Shopping Center. And I want you to help me pick out a present for your mom because she just got a promotion at the magazine that she worked at. So they're not sure if she knew this guy, like if he was like a family friend or if he was a coworker of her mom's or something, because her mom had just had, just got a promotion. So it didn't sound weird to her, I guess. So she says to the guy, she's like, Oh, okay, well I'll meet you down there and we'll buy my mom a present. So witnesses now, now how do her- they, how do they know that? Um, that I'm not entirely sure about. Um, she, did someone overhear the conversation? I think that's what it was. Like it's her just, brother you know, or something? Yeah. It, yeah. Possibly. Cause hmm. look, everybody, like, I think someone else was in the house and heard her talking okay. because, you know, a few sources I read said, yeah, it sounded like she knew the guy, you know what I mean? Or, or that she wasn't, you know, like, who are you or anything? She was just like, Oh, Hey, it's you. Yeah, let's do that. You know what I mean? I sounded a little so, bit Tom like about like Tom there. It's like, well, how did how did how did they know this? 
<laughs> yeah, that's the thing. But I don't know. But yeah, so evidently she's seen uh, on October 27th. She's talking to a guy in front of a barbershop at Bay Village Square. Presumably this is the same man that she was talking to on the phone. Um, a couple of her school you know, friends were kind of passing by and they saw her. They said nothing looked weird. Like, you know, she didn't look threatened. She looked totally fine. So, but shortly after that happened, like after her friend saw her, uh, she disappeared. Now she was missing for more than three months. They actually didn't find her body until February of 1990. She, um, she was found face down in a field in Ruggles Township, not far off County Road 1181. She had been raped and stabbed multiple times. Um, also, the killer took a bunch of her clothes and her jewelry that she had been seen wearing the last time she was seen, um, took her shoes and other things. They think maybe as souvenirs. So the only kind of uh, physical evidence they had they said that they found on her body, they found these kind of fibers. They were tan. And they think that they were from the inside of a General Motors vehicle manufactured between 1976 and 1978. Um, so there was that. They knew what car the guy had, or roughly. Now, interestingly, and maybe this might uh, answer your question, but when they reopened the case, uh, the first time in 2006 police said that they had gotten reports that other girls in that area had gotten similar phone calls. Yeah. To Amy. Yeah. Now I don't know how long the police had known about that, but they didn't report it until 2006. So, uh, one of the, our fellow podcasts out there cruising with steak. I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with them, but one of the co-hosts, James Cruz, um, he's said it on this show before, so it's not like a secret. His wife, he's from Cleveland, Ohio, that area. Yeah. His his wife actually got one of those calls. She was one of the girls. No way. Yeah. yeah. And I that's how I knew that's how I knew about the um uh about the Amy Mahalovich before I even read any yeah. of the book because he, he mentioned that on the on our show one time, said that you know, just it came up in the conversation. Can you imagine that always yeah. freaked me out because I'm that freaks me out. I mean, obviously it freaks me out like getting murdered by a serial killer, but it also freaks me out too. Like if you like, what if you'd been one of the women that got picked up hitchhiking by Ed Kemper? Yeah. And he let go? Cause he let a lot of people go. 150 people according to him. Yeah. Yeah. According to him. Uh, so what if, and it's like, I'm always like after that guy was caught, like if you saw that on the news and you're like, Holy crap, I totally got to ride with that guy. Yeah, his man that would be ooh, that would be super creepy big lanky dude yeah <laughs> holy crap but yeah so they um so all these phone calls they were speculating that um maybe he got all their names and addresses and phone numbers and stuff from there was like a visitor's book at the lake erie nature and science center like in the area because they said that pretty much every all the girls that got those phone calls had been there like shortly before and it had written in the visitor's book. And I guess they wrote their addresses or phone numbers or whatever in there. So they thought that maybe there was a link there. Um, so like I said, that was 2006. They announced that they, they kind of reopened again in 2016. 
Um, and they, you know, they came forward with like some more evidence that they had in the case. They said they had a curtain that was like olive green that had been made out of a bedspread that they thought had been used to wrap Amy's body with. Um, and it had dog hair on it that was kind of that was similar to the hair from Amy's dog. Um, they also found three hairs, like human hairs, on her clothing. And they announced in 2019 that they are trying to get a partial DNA profile of the killer from that. So that was pretty recent. So we'll see how that goes if they ever solve this. Let's let's cover a few more cases. Um, this one, this is kind of towards the bottom of your list. Inokashira Park dismemberment incident. Oh, the Inokashira <laughs> Park. Yeah, this one's crazy too. <laughs> Again, just like so. so yeah. Right yeah, yeah. It sounds yeah. like a death metal album. Slightly <laughs> <laughs> yeah. with a band probably from Florida. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd actually be surprised. I I wouldn't be surprised if there was like a death metal album called this. But yeah, this happened in spring of 1994. And there was a park called Inokashira Park. It was in Tokyo. And so there's this cleaning woman. It's April 23rd. And she's like cleaning out the garbage cans. And she notices this bag in there that like smelled really, really bad. Um, why she wanted to look in there, I don't know. But she did. <laughs> so... You know what I mean? It's like, oh, super stinky. Let's see what that is. Hmm, but yeah, what's so that? she opens, That's weird. Yeah, so she opens the bag and there's like a human foot in there. So obviously she calls the police. Uh, so the police come and clean out this bag. There were several bags in the uh, in the garbage can. They found 24 pieces of a human body. Nice. Uh, this was a shoulder, two feet, two hands. And uh, a bunch of other chunks. They had all been cut into like eight inch pieces. Um, also drained of blood and washed. They never did find uh, the torso. They never did find the head. Uh, they never found the genitalia. Now, a few days later, they identified the murder victim as a 35-year-old architect named Seichi Kawamura. Now, he had last been seen... Now, he lived, like, not too far from the park. He had last been seen, like, the night before, like, leaving a karaoke bar about 11 o'clock. He was by himself, um, allegedly. And he had been reported missing the next day because he hadn't come out, come back from, you know, being out of the karaoke bar. So they thought that this body had been cut apart with, uh, like, a fisherman's knife and maybe an electric saw. They think that they started <laughs> cutting him up while he was still alive. Ugh. Um, yeah, they, they weren't sure entirely how he died. Like, they don't know what the exact cause of death was. Like, they don't know if it was just because they started cutting on them or, or if they, it's kind of hard to tell. <laughs> yeah. They're like, it's kind of hard to tell because like I said, they didn't find the head or they, you know, they just found pieces and they were all like cut up and stuff. Now they did have some witnesses that, uh, that remembered seeing the guy, like seeing the victim, like going into the park. Um, other witnesses also reported seeing two guys around 4am, like carrying a bag around the park, uh, which presumably that was the killer. Now, one witness who lived near the park said that they heard a car hitting something like in the middle of the night. And so for a while people were thinking, oh, well maybe somebody like just hit the guy accidentally and then cut him up like, and put him in the garbage can to cover up the crime. I'm like, 
that seems a little far-fetched. And also because the guy was like, so, you know, neatly portioned out, like just to be gross about it and had been like drained of blood. And I don't believe they found any other blood. So I don't think he was actually killed in the park. I think he was killed somewhere else. They cut him up somewhere else and then dumped him there in the park. Now, as far as they looked into this, the victim's like background or anything like that, he didn't appear to have any enemies. He didn't really seem to be up to anything shady that would like, you know, that, that would bring this down upon him. Not that anyone deserves it, but you know, they're thinking maybe it was Yakuza. Maybe it was an organ dealing gang. Maybe he was in a cult and he was trying to leave. And that was like his punishment or something like that. But other than that, nothing. And it's a, it's sad because it's like every every single case I have to end it with that. Other than that, nothing. <laughs> what what kind of electrical saw are we talking about? Like a, a circle saw or like a reciprocal? Sefriel really wants to know. <laughs> I was thinking electric saw. I was almost thinking I was thinking like a jigsaw or something like that, or maybe one of those saws like they cut like wood planks with. That circular saw. I was thinking about that. Yeah, yeah. I've taken a circular saw to the knee before. That's what I was wondering. That would be uh, the way to solve you? it. Yeah, it's pretty. Oh my it's god. Gruesome. But uh, that that yeah. would be the way to solve it because I'm sure the next week that guy was going around to construction sites and hey, I got some stuff for sale. I don't <laughs> mind that as some red paint. On it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> He's trying to unload it on Craigslist. <laughs> Slightly used. So the next one I want to <laughs> the next one I want to talk about, and this is Tristan Brubach, and I want to warn everybody: this one is like the most brutal. For some reason, yeah, this, this one struck me as the most brutal of from all Wait. three of the books. But yeah, this Tristan Brubach, and this is another one I'm surprised isn't better known. I mean, I guess I understand why it's not better known in the United States because it happened in Germany, but just I mean, the sheer brutality of it. And the fact that they never solved it is like really freaky. Yeah. So that this happened in 1998. It was the end of March, and it was the last day of school before uh, they got out for Easter break. So um, little Tristan Brubach, he was 13 years old. He lived with his dad and his grandma. His mom had died a short time before, and his dad had already gone to work. He went to work really early at like four in the morning. Now Tristan gets up at eight o'clock. And he calls his dad at work and he says, you know, I'm, you know, my back is really hurting today and I don't, I don't really feel like going to school. So his dad thinks he's just, you know, slacking off and he's like, no, just go ahead to school. And he's like, if you still feel bad, like at lunch or later on, like you can leave and you go to the doctor or whatever. So Tristan's like, okay, fine. So he starts going to school. He meets up with his little buddy on the way to school. He was just walking uh, his, he ran into his friend Boris, you know, they kind of hung out and smoked some cigarettes and stuff. So they actually didn't turn up at school until late. It was like second period. They get there about nine o'clock in the morning. Now, according to all his teachers and classmates, Tristan was in school, uh, all his classes prior to lunchtime and he went to lunch. Now his first class after lunch, about 15 minutes into that, he went up to his teacher and said, you know, just my back is really hurting and you know, I want to go home and I want to go see a doctor or whatever. Now, the teacher asked him, like, what had happened to his back, and he said that he had fallen out of a tree the day before and had hurt his back, although uh, other witnesses said that he had actually been in, not necessarily in a fight, but he was um, kind of bullied, and um, there had been, like, some other boys, like, throwing rocks at him, 
And they think maybe that that might be where if he if the back injury was real and he wasn't just faking it, then that might have been where that came from. But he didn't like to tell people that he got bullied because apparently he was really sensitive about it. So he just told people he fell out of a tree. So the teacher said, OK, well, you can go. So Kristen leaves school. It's about one thirty in the afternoon. He takes a bus and he gets off the bus at uh, the Frankfurt Hext train station. Now, he spent about two hours at this train station, and there was some CCTV footage of him. Uh, 146, he's seen on the CCTV camera. It was He was inside a shop. It looked like he was moving toward the payphone, but they weren't entirely sure. They said there was also another guy in there, like kind of near him, but the image was too blurry to determine like whether he was actually interacting with the guy or if the guy just happened to be standing there or whatever. So they weren't sure like who that was or if there was a relationship. Now, later on in the day, like other classmates also saw him kind of hanging around at the train station. This was between 2.15 and 2.45. One of the girls said that he looked like he was sitting on a bench waiting for somebody, but wasn't entirely sure. He might've just been sitting there for some other reason. Um, The last time that he was seen alive, there was a woman who was walking her dog through the park, like right near the train station. This was, a, you know, a little before 3.30 p.m. So this woman's walking her dog, and Tristan was apparently like a big animal lover. Like he had a pet rabbit at home, and he loved animals. And so Tristan was sitting on a bench when this woman walked by. He was sitting there smoking, and he asked if he could pet her dog. So she stopped and let him pet the dog, and he's like, oh, I love animals and everything like that. She said he seemed really friendly and really nice and everything. Now, after that little interaction, she kept on walking. Now, she said uh, when she turned around and looked like a couple minutes later, she said now there were two adult males like sitting on either side of Tristan on the bench. She said they looked, quote unquote, foreign. I'm not sure entirely what that means, but that's what she said. She said these two guys that were sitting there looked foreign, i.e. not German. Now, they're not sure what happened to him exactly after that like the 90 minutes after that but it was 90 minutes later there was another group of little kids and they were going through um Liederbach tunnel which is this little shortcut and it goes underneath the train overpass it's like this it's this really dang it's closed up now but um j- because of this but there's like a little sidewalk through there and then there's like a little river i he- hesitate to call it a river i guess it kind of is but it's more like a stream and uh, a lot of kids like took a shortcut because it was like a school and there was like a daycare over there So these kids like start going through this tunnel and they see Tristan Brubach in there dead. So they run back out and they go and tell the teacher at the daycare that, you know, there's a dead kid in the tunnel. So the teachers come to make sure they're not making stuff up and then they call the cops. Now, the kid at first, he just looked like he was sleeping, but then they get closer to him and what had happened, he had been beaten and choked, um, probably like at the mouth of the tunnel, and then the killer had dragged him into the tunnel, slashed his throat, um, almost decapitating him. Uh, the the wound went all the way to his spine. Good then Lord. he bled all the, he took all the kid's blood out, like he bled the kid out into the water, like, you know, the water that went alongside the path. He also took out um, the boy's testicles from his scrotum and took them with him, presumably. Mm. He also took a bunch of um, chunks of flesh out of his thigh and buttocks 
and also took those along with him. Those like Albert Fish. Is what yeah, this is some of. Albert Fish stuff right yeah. here. Now, they presumed that because the boy's backpack was not found at the scene, they thought maybe the killer had put the pieces of the boy's body in the backpack and had taken them away with them, either because he wanted to keep them for some reason or because he was going to eat them. So, yeah. Now, the only thing they found on the remains, they said one creepy thing was that apparently there had been like a struggle because I guess... I don't know if um, Tristan was like cutting through the tunnel because a lot of people did. Um, And then the guy just like grabbed him at the mouth of the tunnel and dragged him farther back in there so they wouldn't be seen. But they said apparently one of his shoes had come off in the struggle. And then the killer, like after he had killed the boy, he went to all the trouble of like going back to the mouth of the tunnel, picking up the shoe. And then he put it like on the boy's chest, like, you know, like, ta-da kind of thing. Which I thought was kind of creepy. That was that was very strange. Yeah, yeah. Like, why would he bother to do that? I don't know. It's so they like did he find. Had, it's almost like he had respect. Like some weird, like yeah, respect for his victim or something. There's, a, it, it felt. I'm not one to go really too sensationalist on things, but it felt like really like a religious thing almost. It may have been. I mean, it's just. It's so weird. And and the weird thing about it, it's like, not only was this like a really horrible, like brutal crime against a very young kid, but this happened, it was the middle of the afternoon. And this mm-hmm. was like a busy train station. And that tunnel was like, people were walking through that tunnel all the time. Yeah, it was dark and creepy and everything, but it was like a common shortcut. So it's like this guy, I mean, he he just picked like, you know, if you're going to murder somebody that really seems like the worst possible and to do all of that in there, but they think that he did that in like less than 15 minutes. Right. And because like there have been ki- people all around there. And some kids think that they think some, some kids saw him in there. Yeah. Doing because it. they yeah. said what later on, like after the death was reported, there was a group of kids that had been, they had been planning to go through the tunnel, but they said, then we looked in the tunnel and we saw this guy And they said he was like crouching over an object. They didn't know what it was. And they thought that it looked weird and creepy. So they said, you know, we're just going to go around. And because of the time that that happened, they're pretty sure that those kids saw him, saw the man killing Tristan Brubach, but that they didn't know, like they didn't realize it was a kid. They just saw the man like lean. The victim. So, but they did actually remember what the guy looked like. And this tells me too, because the guy was really like distinctive looking and I'm amazed that they didn't find him because all the kids, they interviewed all the kids separately. They all said he was about average height, about five foot seven. They said, um, he was pretty like thin. He had light colored eyes, probably like blue or light green. They said he had long blonde hair that was pulled back in a braid or a ponytail, and he had a baseball cap on. They all said that he looked kind of scruffy, kind of dirty, and that he had this really big, and they could see this, like even in the darkness of the tunnel and everything. They said he looked like he had a hair lip or he had like a big, huge scar, like on his upper lip. And it was like drastic enough that they could see it from far away. So the fact that they never found this guy, because other people saw him that day, too, like, you know, people saw him like a guy that looked like that, like coming out of the tunnel and stuff, but they never could find him, even though it seems like it would be super easy. Now, a couple days after the body was found, um, this guy called the Frankfurt police station and said that he was the guy that had killed Tristan 
and that he wanted to turn himself in. So he told the cops, I'm at the that train station right now. I'm on a pay phone. But he described himself as being like taller than the guy that had seen. He said he was five foot eleven and he said he had black hair. Now, I actually listened to if you Google it, you can um, listen to the audio of the phone call. They do actually do have a recording of it. It's in German, obviously. So I couldn't really tell what he was saying. But a lot of people that were commenting on it that did speak German said that guy sounds drunk. I can really tell because, like I said, it was true. Right, right. But right. yes, yeah, so this guy called and he says at the end, he says, arrest me. Huh. So the cops like run to the train station, obviously, but they couldn't find anyone of that description. They couldn't find anyone of the other descriptions. So they think it was probably just somebody playing a prank. Yeah. You know, yeah. Up that is. Kind of like um, the Zodiac Killer stuff where the guy calls into the radio station or the TV show. and Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so they did find like a, a single bloody fingerprint like on the body and they've been trying to match that. So like they've fingerprinted like thousands and thousands of guys like in that immediate area and they st- so far still have not found a match. Um, they did have, they did, were able to get like a DNA profile, but they haven't found a match of that either. They did find Tristan's backpack later on. Uh, about a year later, actually, it was about 16 miles away. Now, inside the backpack, they didn't find any body parts or anything like that, but they did find a map of Germany that was in Czech, uh-huh. which apparently Tristan did not speak. So they're presuming that the killer was maybe Czech because obviously Tristan didn't speak that language. Now, there was like some stuff later like after this came out like with the backpack and the map and everything like that like this woman was like oh you know i was in the woods one day and i saw this crazy guy who was kind of out ranting in the woods like near where the backpack was found that he was saying something like he had to find his lost sheep and that he said he was in the french foreign legion and all this other kind of stuff but it turned out that they identified that guy and I guess that there was no way that he could have been the killer because he was he was actually in the French Foreign Legion and he was accounted for that day, yeah. like in his unit or whatever. Yeah. So he was just some crazy person ranting. But like I said, they did find the backpack with the map in it. And that's, you know, that's pretty much where that stands. Now, another creepy thing that happened, too, was that later on in October of 1999, which is more than a year after the murder. This was 1998 um, that this happened? Yeah, that, okay. that it happened in yeah March 1998. So in October of 1999, Tristan's grandmother goes to visit Tristan's grave, and it looked like somebody had tried to dig the kid up. <laughs> like That's they didn't so get, weird. They didn't get to the coffin. Like They just went there, and there was like a big pile of dirt like on a tarp. Like uh-huh. next, but it looked like somebody had started to dig him out, but they didn't. They either gave up or they got caught or something like that. But they, yeah. So they're not sure was this the killer, and he just like came back because he wanted the body, or was it just because this was a pretty high profile case? Because stuff like that did not happen in Germany. I mean, you know, it was, it's this case was like super super rare. So. It, it could be that there was just some sicko that was like, oh, that case is so famous. I'm going to go dig up the body for some reason. And then something happened. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, this, it's really strange. And there's, there's so many elements there. There's so much weird stuff with that. And like, whenever you get to like this whole thing about people kidnapping children and killing them, 
you get to the weird bizarre occult stuff like it gets it gets really really weird yeah you know Mm -hmm. like you don't want to you don't want to step into like the satanic panic stuff but like you know you'd almost make stuff like that that kind of case there almost really makes you think like because there is there seems like a very much like a really ritual and religious aspect to that case to me there really does i mean you know it's yeah it's like satanic panic and i'm sure that there's like you know obviously most cases don't have anything to do with cults or anything like that but it's you know on the other hand it's a big world there's a lot of crazy people out there so you know every now and then i'm sure there is one that has a cult you know some kind of occult significance to it and this does actually kind of seem like one of those because that just seems like such a random you know and it's it's like stuff came out later about people were trying to kind of paint Tristan as like, oh, he was like a street kid or, you know, right. he was a drug mule or he was a prostitute. And, you know, and, and that guy, that guy was one of his clients or something like that. But I mean, I, I think that's been exaggerated. I mean, yeah, his mom was dead, but, you know, his family and he did run around a lot without supervision. But, you know, a lot of kids do that age. And it just seems like it wasn't that there wasn't really a lot of evidence to support that. Um, so whether he knew this guy and this guy ended up killing him, whether, whether this guy was like stalking other kids and just decided to kill him that day, I don't really know, but they, to this day, they still haven't caught him for a while. They thought it might've been, um, Manfred seal, uh, that German serial killer who actually, he was a serial killer that they didn't know was a serial killer until after he was dead. Yeah. That story is really weird. Yeah. tell Tell that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, he actually ended up, he didn't, they don't think that he killed Tristan, but for a while he was kind of like a a prime suspect. What ended up happening with him is that he died in 2014 and everybody around him, he had a, he had a wife and a daughter, like he worked in a printing company or something. He's just totally normal dude. He died of cancer in 2014. Then his daughter was cleaning out his, uh, he had like a rented storage unit She's cleaning it out. She finds this big blue barrel in there that has human body parts in it. Now, it turned out. Could that you imagine th- being her? That's what I mean. Jeez. It's like, this is like her dad. And she's and yeah. she was like grown. It's like, so she'd known this guy her whole life. And then she's right. going and cleaning out his stuff. And it's like, you know, the, the worst you would expect to find is like some yucky porn or something like that. And then you end up with like a barrel with like human body parts. He's in a it. human butcher. Yeah, it's like, can you imagine? So they found, so the body parts ended up belonging to um, a prostitute who was named uh, Simone Diallo, and she had been missing since 2003. So they think, like, police start looking into this guy's past, and they figure, like, since 1971, when they think he might have murdered, like, two women that he worked with, but he's been going to prostitutes like fairly regularly. He's not killing all of them, clearly, but he's uh, beating some of them up. Like a lot of them reported like him being really violent toward them. Um, but some of them, they think that he killed. They think that he might have killed between five and nine women between 1971 and 2004. And nobody even knew what he was up to. He was dead before they found out. <sighs> 
Now, the reason that they first like <laughs> thought that he might have killed Tristan, uh, Tristan Brubach was because he would do very similar, like kind of sexual mutilations. Like he would cut off like women's breasts and, you know, things of that nature. So they were thinking because of the bodily mutilations were very similar that maybe he'd some, he had something to do with it. But as far as they know, he didn't target young boys. He just targeted prostitutes, like older, you know, women in their Teen, late teens early 20s right. so it, it wasn't, wasn't his victim profile yeah yeah because usually those are two different types of pathologies it's not you know it's not impossible but you know they're they're pretty sure that it wasn't him but um you know they don't really have any idea who did do it however let's finish up with uh one from the music industry and that's uh peter ivers this is one that uh you know, I, I rediscover I discovered a few years ago like the whole new wave theater, yeah stuff, and a lot of that you can see on YouTube now, like all that kind of like old new wave stuff from like L.A. from like the from the eighties. Yeah. But Peter Ivers was the uh, host of that show, yep. and he died kind of like in a mysterious circumstance. He did, yeah. And this was another one that it, it just seems like it's sad because he was like he seemed like a really influential guy like in the early eighties, but it seems like he's kind of like forgotten about, even though yeah. he got horribly but yeah so this happened in this so this guy peter ivers he actually moved to la in the early 70s uh he was a musician and uh he had like you know released some albums and opened for the new york dolls fleetwood mac stuff like that he played uh harmonica and um after he moved there he kind of got in with like a lot of really influential people he was like he knew like all the big comedians at the time like jim belushi dan Aykroyd, all those people he hung out you know, with the Saturday Night Live people and and stuff. Uh, he also was responsible for, you know, people who have seen Eraserhead. Uh, he wrote and sang the Lady in the Radiator song. Yeah, I had uh, no idea about that until you yeah, read that I didn't in your know book. That either. Yeah. And um, he was also actually responsible for getting um, the screening where they showed Eraserhead to Francis Ford Coppola and Mel Brooks, which resulted in them letting David Lynch direct the elephant man, which of course was kind of like his big break. So, you know, Peter Ivers was like indirectly responsible for David Lynch getting his big break and everything. So, so this guy, he hosted, he later went on and hosted the show called new wave theater. As you said, um, started out on a local station in Los Angeles and then went national, uh, when USA network used to have night flight, which I remember. Yeah. I, I barely remember it, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember watching that all the time. But yeah, so they, it was like, they had like live clips of shows. It was usually like LA, like uh, punk and post-punk bands. They had like 45 Grave, Fear, Dead Kennedys, Circle Jerks. Yeah, um, some great some stuff. Ones. Yeah. Yeah, stuff like that. So he was all up in that scene. Um, you know, and like I said, he was also in with like a bunch of comedians and stuff. Now, however, on March 3rd uh, of 1983... He was actually found dead in his apartment. He had been bludgeoned to death with a hammer. Now, weirdly, I'm not really sure why the police allowed this. I mean, I have <laughs> suspicions. Well, because there's other been other cases, particularly in Los Angeles, like and you know, of people that are kind of famous. It seems like the cops are really cavalier about letting people in to like run all over the crime scene which they did in this case. Like they let people come in like neighbors, friends. They just like let them run all over the apartment. 
they let David Jove, who was the guy that had started um, New Wave Theater, he was like a Canadian guy, they let him take um, Peter Ivers' bloody bed sheets, like from the bed, why he wanted them, I don't know. Like some people think that David Jove might have killed him, but, you know, there's not enough evidence to convict him on that. But the fact that the cops just kind of let everybody run roughshod over the thing. So, you know, that it's one of those things where it's probably like, you know, it'll never be solved at this point. But as I said, David Jove, who was kind of like Peter Ivers' partner on New Wave Theater, a lot of people thought that maybe he might have been the killer because he was kind of, they said even on the show, he was kind of like came forth like very bullying um, and stuff. Like even one friend of theirs like said that he was like Charles Manson kind of. Um you know, he was always real provocative, like trying to get a rise out of people. And when they interviewed, um, you know, they they interviewed like a lot of famous people, like his suspects and persons of interest and stuff. They interviewed uh, Harold Ramis and, um, you know, as a suspect, but he was cleared. Um, obviously, he didn't do it. But right. uh, but yeah, but he said that he thought he's like of everybody I know and that knows Peter Ivers, David Jove is the only person that I would not rule out. So. Huh. But uh, David Jobe actually died in 2004, also of cancer, pancreatic cancer. And uh, so they were never able to, uh, you know, charge him with that. Now, some people have speculated that maybe, um, because a lot of people, a lot of other people that knew David Jobe was like, oh, you know, he'd never do that. Now, some people have said that, you know, the neighborhood where Peter Ivers lived was kind of sketchy. And, you know, there was drug addicts, there was homelessness, there was stuff like that. So it's like, it could be that somebody just busted into his apartment and killed him for shits and giggles or, you know, came in to to rob him or something like that. It didn't necessarily have to be someone he knew, but they, like I said, again, (laughs) no progress been made on the case. It's like... As I believe they reopened it in 2008 after a biography of him came out. But as far as I know, there have been no further developments on that score. Yeah. And you also talk about uh, Joe Cole in the book, too. The guy who um, yeah. was a I guess and he this, was a, this was one. where This was this was one where, um, again, he was he was shot in the course of a robbery, clearly. Yeah. But. I thought that the case was so well known because of his, you know, relationship with Henry Rollins that it would have been weird to leave it out. I mean, it's just basically, it's just so sad because it was just so random. I mean, you know, this happened in, you know, late 1991. It was late December. It's like, you know, he lived with Henry Rollins. They were roommates. They had gone out one night to go. They had gone to see hole actually at the whiskey a go, go. Yeah. We're coming home from the concert and they stop by a grocery store to like get some snacks or whatever. And they're outside of their house and two guys just came up to him and said, Hey, give us some money. And they put both of them on the ground and they start going through their pockets. And, you know, they were mad because they only had like less than 50 bucks between them. So they told Henry, they're like, well, I'm going to shoot you guys. Why don't you go in the house and get us some more money? So Henry starts to go, in the house to get more money. And then they just shot Joe Cole in the face. They also shot at Henry, but 
they missed him. Don't rob oh. punk rockers because you're not going to get any money off of punk rockers. That's not going to happen. That's what I mean. It's like, don't you guys know anything? <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> yeah, and, that, and that's never been solved to this day. Like, I mean, it's like, what you want a candy wrapper? That's about all I got. <laughs> and, and, and Sonic Youth, I think, did songs about him. He, I think in the uh, Dirty the- album. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah. And Henry Rollins uh, published a book of Joe Cole's writing. I, I, and actually, I remember because I used to watch 120 minutes along a lot back in the day. Yeah. And I, so I remember when this happened and I remember Henry Rollins being on there a lot, like talking about it. And uh, obviously he made it a big part of his uh, spoken word stuff after that, too. So I saw that as well. So that so this was one case that, like I said, even though technically it happened in the course of a robbery, um, which normally I wouldn't include, but because he was so well-known and because it was something that I remembered, because I remember being like really shocked when it happened mm-hmm. that I just, you know, that I thought I'd put it in there. Well, we've barely scratched the surface as usual. There's, there's so yeah. much more we could have talked about. I'll give you a big list. I think so we need to talk about five. <laughs> so many murders. <laughs> so many murders. But, uh, it's, it's so let's, uh, we're, we're gonna do we're we're gonna do a Patreon segment with you and with Tom, but uh, let's save the Alcazar murders for the pa- for the Patreon segment. Okay, let's do that, and so that'll give you okay. know maybe people an incentive to become a Patreon at conspiranormal dot com or consp- yeah. Patreon dot com slash slash conspiranormal. Yeah, that's it. So uh, <laughs> only one dollar, guys, gets you in. You can hear this show. So Jenny, um, where is the book available? Where can people find it? And where can people find you? And I also wanted to ask you a question. Since it's 2019 and the first 20 years of the 21st century are are pretty much behind us, are you going to do another book? I have been thinking about it. That is one of I, I have like three or four like possible next projects like for next year. And that is definitely one of them. Because I was thinking that myself. I'm like, well, gosh, now it's like 20 years into the new century yeah. already. So it's like. Maybe I should just maybe I should start early and just do like a volume one. So that is that is a, a very distinct possibility. Yeah. Cool. It's time. <laughs> right. And uh, where can people find the book and uh, uh, find your excellent podcast? Amazon is the easiest place to find the book. Um, you know, it's available in print format, ebook format, and I also do audiobook formats. I read them myself, uh, so you can find them all on there. Uh, also the podcast you can usually find on YouTube, just search 13 o'clock podcast. We have all our cute little episodes on there. We do all kind of paranormal true crime. We review movies, new ones, old ones, all kind of different stuff. And, uh, I also have a website, www.jennyashford.com that has a link to all the different stuff I do, which is a lot of stuff. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Okay. Jenny, stay on the line for us. We're going to continue this this conversation on our Patreon. And guys, we'll be back to close out this episode on Conspiranormal. If you want your HR team to hire top talent for your company, tell them about ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience and actively invites them to apply to your company's job posts so you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Conspiranormal. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Conspiranormal. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Raise it up. Raise the kundalini. Raise the kundalini. 
That's right. So, it is 12.40 in the morning. Burning the midnight oil. Yeah, yeah. We did that show with uh, Tom and Jenny. Well, actually, with just Jenny on this one, but we did a show with uh, Tom added in for the Patreon episode, and we, which we got to talk a little bit about the uh, bullshit uh, kung fu guys. From yeah, the, that was from, pretty cool. From the seventies and uh, some stuff about the Superstition Mountains and uh, all that, and then we got into the Alcazar murder case. Uh, which Colonia some, Dignidad too. Yeah, so when we got a Colonia Dignidad, I don't even know how we did that, and that is uh, available on our Patreon feed, or will be available on our Patreon feed pretty soon. Um, so check it out, guys. That's a we did I think like another hour with them. Yeah, and so, then we did a Soraya show, which you guys have already heard now, right? Yeah, I think by this work? time, yeah the the magic of time, the magic of time travel. You guys have already heard uh, that show that we actually did second, but it got re- released first because we wanted to time it with Soraya's schedule. So, all right, well, we're going to close out this show, but we want to remind everybody. In case you haven't heard, Strange Realities Conference. Strange Realities. Yep, the Strange Realities Conference still going on, still happening on October 19th of 2019 at SIR Nashville. We are going to be there as our Tim Banal, Joshua Cutchin, Timothy Renner, Joe Damari, Mark Anthony Wyatt, and Zach Hunt speaking. And then we're going to have some extra surprise maybe a couple of surprise guests milling around as well a couple surprise legends a couple surprise legends yeah and uh if you guys are planning on coming we really need those pre-sales so we can gauge everything that's right these are very limited supply uh we have hotels uh with a special rate uh there's tons of cool stuff to do and there'll be tons of cool fellow travelers to meet that's right. So, guys, please you know, go to strangerealitiesconference.com. It's only 30 bucks to get in. Um, we know that uh, some people may be traveling, but if you are close to Nashville, please come for the weekend. Come hang out with us. We are going to be there. It's going to be really informative. For the first one we've done, so it's going to be really interesting. So, also, just a little things and notes patreon again it's patreon.com slash conspiranormal that's still there it's still active we're trying to put more stuff up on the patreon feed as well it's only a dollar to get in like we said before and go to our youtube channel please subscribe there at uh, youtube and uh, conspiranormal podcast and subscribe and i think that's about it i think we're going to close out the show all right so guys uh join us next time on, on. Conspiranormal StrangeRealitiesConference.com The word is If you would like to help the show please consider becoming a Patreon www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com 
And please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.